Welcome to the AI Asia Pacific Institute podcast. The rise of AI presents important legal and ethical challenges for society. In this podcast, we invite leaders from different industries and creators of new AI to debate the big questions. This is the AI Asia Pacific Institute podcast. Irakli Baridze is the head of the Center for Artificial Intelligence and Robotics at UNICRI, United Nations. More than 20 years of experience in leading multilateral negotiations, development stakeholder engagement programs with governments, UN agencies, international organizations, private industry and corporations, think tanks, civil society, foundations, academia, and other partners on an international level. Mr. Buridze is advising governments and international organizations on numerous issues related to international security, scientific and technological developments, emerging technologies, innovation and disruptive potential of new technologies, particularly on the issue on crime prevention, criminal justice, and security. He is supporting governments worldwide on the strategies action plans, roadmaps, and policy papers on AI. Since 2014, initiated and managed one of the first United Nations programs on AI, initiating and organizing a number of high-level events at the United Nations General Assembly and other international organizations. Finding synergies with traditional threats and risks as well as identifying solutions that AI can contribute to the achievement of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. He is a member of various international task forces, including the World Economic Forum's Global Artificial Intelligence Council, the UN High-Level Panel for Digital Cooperation, and the High-Level Expert Group on Artificial Intelligence of the European Commission. He is frequently lecturing and speaking on the subjects related to technological development, exponential technologies, artificial intelligence and robotics, and international security. He has numerous publications in international journals and magazines and frequently quoted in media on issues related to AI. Irakli Baridze is an international gender champion supporting the IGC Panel Party Pledge. He is also recipient of recognition on the awarding of the Nobel Peace Prize to the OPCW in 2013. With you now, our host for this podcast, Kelly Forbes. Welcome to the podcast, Irakli. I thank you very much, Kelly. I'm happy to be with you. I'm very happy that you're here uh, to share more about the work United Nations is doing to promote collaboration around the challenges with artificial intelligence. So I think um, actually a good start for this conversation uh, would actually be around your work, um, anticipating um, the, 
the, the relations with chemical weapons. So as I understand, this work was very successful. It led to the destruction of close to 99% of chemical weapons worldwide. So I think this is an incredible achievement. It's not directly related to AI, but I think it's particularly interesting because we have managed to have most of the world to agree on something. And this is particularly relevant to our conversation here, um, particular to these challenges that we're going to discuss involving artificial intelligence. So can I invite you to share more of this work and how we arrive at that achievement? Uh, Kelly, thank you very much. I think this is a really good question. First of all, thank you for inviting and I'm uh, uh, pleased to share some of my thoughts and ideas and experiences with you and with your audience. Um, look, the question related to the chemical weapons and especially the treaty, which is called Chemical Weapons Convention, actually is very relevant, not only because I've worked uh, in the organization which was implementing this treaty and which is still implementing the treaty quite successfully, but also it has quite a relevance to the discussions related to AI. And this question has, er has arised numerous times in the discussion whether we can learn some lessons from successful treaties which have been implemented, especially for something which has a dual use and which has a sort of both negative and positive connotation. If you take the sort of chemicals, obviously we use conventional chemicals on a daily basis for peaceful purposes. There's a huge chemical industry which benefits us all. And at the same time, the same chemicals can be used for malicious purposes, can be used as, as weapons. Chemical weapons have been, have been developed for over 100 years, have been deployed in many different situations and circumstances, and a lot of people have died. Now, with the, with the convention itself, which entered into force uh, later in the 90s, uh, namely in 97, created an organization which is called Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons in charge of ensuring that the treaty is implemented correctly. It, and the treaty envisages that all chemical weapons, and I repeat again, all chemical weapons on the surface of the earth should be verifiably destroyed. So there are other treaties in the world which says that this has to be done and this should be uh, achieved, but there is no real organization which is in charge to make sure that this is happening. It's a quite a large organization with 500 people and, um, and inspecting basically and ensuring that the treaty on the one hand is implemented verifiably, meaning that the chemical weapons are destroyed with international um, inspectors present. And at the same time, make sure that cooperation on the peaceful use of chemistry is promoted. So countries le learn from one another and use chemicals to achieve peaceful goals, to strive their economies, to strive their productions, employ people, and so on and so forth. Now, on the AI side, we have something very similar. On the one hand, artificial intelligence can be extremely beneficial for humankind, and we will probably be discussing this later in the podcast, but uh, at the same time, this can be used for malicious purposes. It is being used for malicious purposes, and there is a huge potential that it can actually pose extremely serious challenges, including the existential risks to the humankind, and I guess 
we can also touch upon that later on. Yeah, definitely. So when it comes to artificial intelligence, we know there are many recommendations in the industry, including from the United Nations towards a global approach to AI. Do you think it's possible that we might arrive at a global consensus? Um, you know, similar to the example you were just giving us here around chemical weapons, or even the universal approach to human rights that we saw happening years ago? Look, I mean, first of all, uh, the, um, as far as the global consensus is there, I think we do have a global consensus on several things. We have a global consensus that artificial intelligence can be an extremely powerful tool to solve problems, which I call it, which we at one point thought that they were not solvable, right? And, and we do have a chance to solve such problems. And I think this is amazing and we need to really utilize that. Look, we, at the United Nations, we have UN Sustainable Development Goals, 17 very ambitious goals, so-called Agenda 2030. And AI is, and I repeat, definitely is a extremely powerful tool to contribute in finding solutions for this uh, or fulfillment of this 17 ambitious UN Sustainable Development Goals. At the UN, we created something called AI for Good Summits. It is run by an um, organization called ITU, International Telecommunications Union. And we and our center is one of the founding partners of this initiative. And under this initiative, what we do is that we are trying to find AI applications, promote them in uh, ensuring how they can contribute in the fulfillment of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. At the UN at large, we have many different initiatives. Uh, UN Secretary General created a specialized uh, sort of a, a movement. It's called the High Level Panel for Digital Cooperation, which resulted in the, the, in the creation of the Roadmap for Digital Cooperation. And that kind of, it sort of looks ahead how and what sort of solutions could be found to promote digital cooperation among UN member states, private sector, academia, and others. And this multi-stakeholder involvement and working hand in hand is extremely crucial for everyone. Now, if we look at from, and, and, and uh, there are many other sort of uh, initiatives within the UN as well, which promotes the use of artificial intelligence for, uh, for finding solutions for the problems. Our center, we work on different issues as well. We work on the issues how to support law enforcement in solving crime-related problems uh, to properly uh, promote criminal justice system and many other things. Now, you asked about the whether it is possible to achieve sort of a global treaty uh, like this. Um, I think we can discuss a little more details later on, but uh, I think right now we are kind of a little bit too early the AI is an evolving technology. It is exponentially growing. Therefore, achieving a, a universal treaty is a very difficult sort of a very uh, cumbersome process. But what we do have though, um, and while there is no treaty as such, there is a sort of merit of policies, ethical frameworks already, national laws, regional frameworks on many aspects of artificial intelligence. And even though there are either no universality or not a strictly law, they're still very valuable. And, uh, and uh, this movement will uh, continue. We will 
have sort of a sectoral approaches in that regard. We will have separate sectoral regulations, sectoral so-called even treaties and agreements, which will support actually at one point to create sort of a universal approach on artificial intelligence because AI is so big and it's growing so exponentially uh, uh, right now, achieving a huge sort of universal treaty on that, it's very difficult. Yes, absolutely. So going back to my example around human rights, I, I specifically like this example um, because also, um, you know, it was after the Second World War that we as a, you know, global uh, universal community were able to come together to agree that these should be universal rights. So any infringement against human rights, now it's considered an international issue, right? And I think similarly, um, artificial intelligence um, should also be considered an international issue, right? It, it cross borders, it's transnational. Um, does it concern you that the developments towards a global framework or a more universal conversation around this, it's still, um, like you said, it's still evolving, um, but the developments in AI are perhaps in, in some parts of the world already ahead um, in terms of, um, you know, the, the potential for good, but also the potential for harm, like you described that before. Does that, um, is something that you think about personally? Look, uh, it's, a, it's a very good question, Kelly. And I mean, look, developments in artificial intelligence indeed presents uh, and presents sort of a global borderless risks and challenges. And which means that, you know, international cooperation is fundamental. Yet international cooperation is always challenging on its own. And then when it comes to technology, countries have very different views and different levels of technological readiness. The fact that universal declaration of human rights exists and that there are human rights treaties that are ratified by most countries in the world shows that some form of international consensus is certainly possible. And I'm a big believer of multi-stakeholder um, uh, uh, cooperation. I'm a big believer of multilateralism. And uh, so often that consensus is in fact propelled by sort of global tragical events, like you've mentioned, World War II, um, World War II. However, achieving a treaty is always difficult. And, and we've talked about that already. So while uh, this, our center, for example, which is, uh, which is mandated, sort of, we're not mandated to create legally binding rules on AI, but to advance the understanding of AI with a special focus on aspects of crime, justice, and other threats to security in order to promote public safety and, and, and uh, reduce crime. That's what we are doing. So when doing so, some of our work may be considered as a sort of a soft law approaches. And it is important to highlight that there are, you know, there is difference between ethical principles and the soft law. And there is a soft law indeed sort of uh, law. It imposes duties, even though it is not legally binding. Now, at the same time, as you mentioned, human rights law still applies in this field and that is very important even though human rights law is somewhat sort of called old it is flexible broad uh, framework that can evolve and adapt to technological developments and from, finally what i would uh, note here is that while you suggest that some of the ethical discussions 
demonstrate a, maybe you know, a lack of consensus between stakeholders, I would in fact argue that this merely provides a stronger case for basing our exploration of AI on the firmly established body of human rights law, rather than uh, looking into interesting but albus nebulous ethical discussions. A human rights-based approach is far less subjective than ethical approach to artificial intelligence, I believe. Yeah. So when it comes to this ethical approach, and I think this is the approach that we are seeing really around the industry in different countries, uh, with different organizations, uh, with proposals around these, including United Nations, we have the principles, right? So, you know, some principles uh, can sometimes mean very different things to different people or different countries, right? How do you suggest that we would, if we were to arrive in an universal agreement about what the principles in AI should be, how would you suggest that we approach this challenge um, about definition, but also about what each principle might mean for each, uh, you know, different country or different organization? Look, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, uh, it's a difficult work and uh, obviously it takes a lot of time to achieve that type of consensus. And at the United Nations, there are numerous discussions on certain definitions uh, or, or, or certain approaches, which can be quite a challenging undertaking to arrive at the sort of agreement when uh, all countries would agree on, uh, on uh, certain sort of notions. But look, uh, what we are doing from our side and uh, and uh, especially in the sort of um, in the field of law enforcement, which could be a quite a sensitive issue for many countries as well, we've achieved a quite a sort of a global understanding that law enforcement organizations who are participating in a sort of a larger platform, which we created together with Interpol, we call it AI for law enforcement uh, movement uh, and global meetings and global uh, global uh, events, we are now, we are sort of moving beyond the principles and we are developing an operational toolkit. So this mm. is the guidebook for the law enforcement agencies. What are, the, uh, what are the right ways of using artificial intelligence to solve crime related problems? Now in that regard, we are looking at sort of a numerous different use cases and numerous different principles and how these use cases apply to the principles. But the general sort of thought here is that law enforcement agencies should endure to adhere to the general principles, such as respect for human rights, democracy, justice, and rule of law. And to meet these principles, the development of and deployment of the use of AI should seek to adopt the requirements such as fairness, accountability, transparency, and explainability through the entire life cycle of the system. So the toolkit, which we are working with Interpol goes into that direction. So it provides recommendations and practical use cases to the law enforcement agencies that can apply basic principles in an easy manner, if I may to say. And that's sort of a larger process within our domain and the similar movements are happening in different fields as well. We do have really good principles, but I do believe that we do need to move beyond principles because that needs to translate into sort of a more soft law approaches to the road of achieving sort of more legally binding treaties and charters. 
Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that it, it's probably time that we evolve into bringing more practice to these conversations and actually engaging, you know, industry and to, you know, convert these principles from ethics to, to actually practice in the day-to-day work of, of these organizations, because that's where the developments that we are seeing are going to unfold. So just to elaborate on this conversation, um, we know that we also have a race towards AI, right? And it evolves, you know, perhaps two to three nations that are really dominating these developments. They, they have put in place some very ambitious strategies to AI. And um, on that, the U.S. recently published um, the U.S. National Security Council AI final report. So it has some interesting references there to AI ethics, um, including the U.S.'s desire to come to an agreement with China and Russia on certain uses of AI in offensive weapons, for example. Do you think that this is a positive sign towards uh, more collaboration, that we're moving in the right direction? And, and if not, should we fear the fact that you know, these nations would naturally be reluctant in reaching an agreement with respect to those ethical standards there? Uh, uh, thank you very much. It's a complicated question. Uh, yeah, Kelly, sorry, it was a long agree. one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let me sort of, sort, of, sort of kind of break this question into a few things and, and then we can decipher out of it and, uh, and uh, ask me a follow-up if uh, my answer would not be so, so specific and clear. Now, what is happening, first of all, is that countries decided and realized that artificial intelligence and related technologies is very powerful and is going to yield to enormous results and benefits for them. And this realization sort of happened very recently, rather for historical perspective, we're talking about only a handful of years. So whether three, four years ago, first national plan of artificial intelligence was adopted in 2016 and beginning of 17, that's the sort of a movement when countries started to adopt their national plans. At the moment, we have around 40 to 45 countries with already adopted governmentally approved national plans on artificial intelligence. Obviously, larger countries, such as United States and China, have a sort of all-encompassing, big and ambitious plans, which covers all areas of development, due to the nature of the economy they have and, uh, and political uh, interest as well. Now, uh, while smaller countries also have very interesting national plans and very ambitious ones, specifically sort of looking into uh, the domains they're interested in or they have a good experience or would like to develop. I would want to note here, and I keep on repeating in many of my public speaking as well, that from the UN perspective, sort of from our perspective, is that 45 countries uh, investing heavily in artificial intelligence is not enough because you have then 140 countries or, or more 150 countries without any plans. And, and that's a dangerous sort of path we might be walking on because we might be sort of uh, uh, really contributing to the very dangerous global phenomena, which we call it a, a growing digital divide. And that's growing digital divide is something that we 
need to avoid at any price because we don't want to end up living in a world in a decade or two where handful, powerful, uh, well-invested countries would dominate the technologically or actually economically or any other ways entire world and then we will have billions of people living in nations without investing in these technologies and falling behind where um, where this phenomena could be catastrophic actually or existentially very dangerous for humankind in general now you've mentioned about collaboration among uh, large larger countries on specific domains and security field whether it's for offensive weapons or so on first of all i believe that uh, we should not be developing any um, sort of so-called lethal autonomous weapons for offensive purposes without human beings in the loop or without any universal agreement with all countries. Um, uh, uh, having said that, any collaboration among countries, I think, is very positive. Uh, while when countries are uh, sort of engaged in dialogue, are engaging, engaged to find specialized frameworks within which they would like to work together to sort of minimize the risks which are associated to artificial intelligence and maximize the benefits. I think it's a very positive phenomena and I'd, uh, uh, I'd be very happy to see more of this happening in different areas. Um, you've mentioned US, China, there's also European Union with very strong human-centric approach to artificial intelligence. Uh, to uh, you also adopted the specialized uh, national plans and very strong emphasis on the human rights aspect, on the ethical aspect, on the privacy, and uh, and is a kind of a leading part in in this domain as well as far as creating sort of promoting the creation of the human centric approach to artificial intelligence. Did I answer your questions? Or if you have a follow-up, we can sort of discuss the design <laughs> for that even further. No, I think, I think you did, yes. I was just going to follow up, going back to, I think you've mentioned this a few times, um, just about the timing that we need to, to reach these agreements, right? And, and we can see that when we look at human rights, for example, right? We used to have, we have about, um, how many cars do we have? We have about, 193 member states that ratified that declaration, right? That's so right. we still have nations that are yet to abide to this agreement there, right? So I imagine that similarly, when we're looking at artificial intelligence, we, we would need to be placing a significant amount of time to have all nations coming together to, to agree to, to this extent on, on something of this level. Is that right? No, correct. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, first you do need to adopt uh, a, a kind of a treaty which would uh, be um, uh, agreed and ratified by uh, by countries, by UN member states. Achieving full universality of the treaties is always um, very, very difficult, um, and um, um, and it's a sort of a long process. Uh, what I mentioned with the chemical weapons and uh, the previous work which I was doing at the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the success of that treaty and success of that organization was actually connected to achievement of almost universal application of, uh, 
of this treaty because it, what we achieved is almost 99% of the entire globe was covered by the norms of the treaty, which is quite amazing, actually, if you if you think of it, the sort of how entire world sort of got together into a consensus on agreeing to get rid of an entire category of a weapon of mass destruction, something extremely powerful. Now, uh, so uh, therefore, there are many other different treaties, obviously, and uh, and many other successful um, uh, international undertakings where we can learn a lot for uh, for uh, achieving something similar with artificial intelligence at uh, at one point. But the basic of the basic is that while doing so, we should not undermine or hinder the progress and the benefits which will be associated to AI. We should promote such benefits, obviously minimizing the risks because what we will be doing in the future, and AI will help us a lot in this, is solve, for example, diseases which we thought were not possible to solve. We will achieve a sustainable economy is in places where we thought were very difficult to do it. We will efficiently use energy resources, which we so desperately need. And uh, we will solve crime-related problems of some which we thought that were very difficult to solve. So therefore, in all these areas and domains, we would need to have powerful tool which interprets enormous amount of data which we are accumulating on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. So I think for all 17, all of the United Nations 17 goals there for sustainability, I think that AI can powerfully drive each and every, every one of those goals, right? Correct. And so, uh, for that, I mean, obviously we have a specialized movement even within the United Nations, how to support engagement of uh, private sector in that regard and uh, and bringing innovation and uh, entrepreneurship into the United Nations to achieve this goal. Yeah. So it would be great if we could explore uh, more of the role of the Center for Artificial Intelligence and Robotics in shaping this development. So as I understand, much of the center's work is to balance the great potential of AI and its implications, right? So perhaps a good challenge, for example, might be when we think about the use of AI by different countries to fight crimes, which I believe it's really, we're really touching in our area here. So we are aware of its great potential to fight crimes, like you just described there before, crime and violence. Uh, we also know that in some respects, the same technology is being used to target citizens and straighten inequality. So how do we find a balance there? Right, uh, no, it's, it's an excellent question. And, uh, and uh, probably one of the sort of so-called bleeding edge of the AI application actually is within this domain, within the use of this technology in the law enforcement in sort of a crime prevention type of area. Because in some other cases, it is pretty straightforward. You use it, you solve the problem, everybody's happy. And here, you may use it, you may solve a problem, and everybody's not happy. So, uh, so that's the kind of a very delicate balance to, uh, to, uh, to keep and very thin eyes sometimes to walk on. So 
the center in general, what the way we envision the world is where crimes are prevented, investigated, prosecuted effectively and efficiently through the use of AI, robotics or related new technologies, but in a manner that does not erode human rights, deepen inequality or exacerbate discrimination. Uh, it's very nice words, nicely put and, um, and admirable, but um, indeed, how do you ensure that this will happen? Very hard job. So to do this, what we what we started to do, is, and, and together with the uh, with Interpol, and that's a quite a powerful sort of collaboration among UN and Interpol in that regard. We yes. created something called AI for law enforcement meetings uh, and global meetings, where we bring together uh, representatives of basically police organizations from all over the world. And the last one. Last meeting we held was end of November last year, where we gathered together about 600 people from 80 something countries. First, what we do there is that uh, we share uh, a country share experience. We facilitate that, how crimes could be solved with use of AI. And at the same time, how to do that with exactly what I mentioned, without eroding human rights, without deepening inequalities or exacerbating discrimination. One of the practical things what we are doing is the creation of the toolkit, which I briefly mentioned before, an operational guidebook. So it's kind of like moving beyond principles type of approach for the law enforcement, for them A, to understand what are the red lines, how uh, universally adopted human rights principles are implemented or understood in this, uh, in this domain, and how to ensure that any of these solutions which they are promoting or they are they need for their daily operations are not crossing the lines, are not infringing on, on, on these human rights. Now, it takes a long time, obviously, to, uh, to achieve that. It's uh, a tedious work, but it's something which is extremely needed. It is something that which, um, uh, which would require sort of a more universal understanding. So uh, the latest on this is that we partnered up, the partnership among uh, UN and Interpol translated to a larger partnership now with European Commission. And we are starting a sort of a, a hands-on work on the creation of uh, such a toolkit, which hopefully will be implemented in all countries in the world. Uh, this project is commencing now. We are already conducting uh, meetings and um, and specialized expert group uh, discussions, which is going to translate into the document, which hopefully will be adopted to all countries in the world. Right. Does the center has a position on facial recognition in specific, um, or do yourself personally? Look, uh, so uh, facial recognition is one of these quite a powerful application of artificial intelligence and specifically in the domain of law enforcement. Uh, and it has many sort of controversies around it. I mean, my personal position is that obviously use of any type of technology should not infringe on privacy and human rights, and it should be only used in a way which sort of doesn't go to that direction. We have a, um, a specialized partnership now with uh, World Economic Forum uh, and uh, Netherlands police and running currently as a, a project on understanding the limits of the responsible use of face rec facial recognition 
and developing a kind of a policy framework, which is tested in the setting of the Netherlands police, how to ensure and how to support the use of such technologies with responsible use of, uh, of uh, with, with the responsible use and ensuring that this doesn't infringe on the human rights. So um, this type of um, work, which World Economic Forum already started to conduct in different, uh, with different other partners. There was a big project in um, Charles de Gaulle Airport, in Narita Airport in, in Tokyo as well. Now we brought it here to the Netherlands with partnership of the Netherlands police, with Interpol and with World Economic Forum. And we are developing type of a, uh, as I said, type of a policy framework which would help in specific cases how to use this responsibly, this technology. Obviously, the technology itself is um, it can potentially be very useful and uh, can support uh, for finding solutions to uh, very serious problems as well. I mean, so, uh, but at the same time, again, I sort of emphasize that it has to be done in such a way that it is not going to sort of jeopardize our privacy, which is a very important uh, principle or very important uh, issue for most of the people in the world. Now, um, if, if you look at sort of certain situations uh, and, and uh, we use this sort of analogy is that if, if you have a child which is missing in a crowded places and the question would arise that do you want facial recognition to be used mm -hmm. to, to find your child, most of the people would say yes, but at the same time, what you don't want is that facial recognition makes a mistake and somebody is unlawfully detained and somebody's reputation is charged or somebody's uh, sort of using it to oppress uh, sort of political opposition or uh, spy on their own people or so on and so forth. That could be numerous, uh, numerous, very dangerous uses of uh, such a powerful technology. I think that's a very good question there and how to, to put this um, um, question to the public. Um, I myself have these conversations with many experts around the industry and the conversation grows from a complete, uh, you know, abandoning of developments in that area um, in the sense that they believe that there is no, there is no way for us to, to have that technology working in accordance with human rights principles or um, to really drive in equality. Um, and on the other hand, you know, I, when we are faced with questions like that, if you have a child and you need to find that child, or if you're fighting terrorism, right, or bigger issues in the world and uh, facial recognition can actually provide an answer to that, then, um, you know, it's a difficult balance, right? Like you said, um, as long as we can, we could manage to have this working the right way. And, and the question is, how could we do that? Yes, in general, I mean, we've seen some places where face recognition have been uh, sort of suspended or use of this technology have been suspended or even banned uh, in sort of sporadic parts of the world, uh, which is fine. But at the same time, I'm not really a big believer of banning technology in general. I'm a believer of using technology for good. And I believe that we collectively, uh, if we work sort of hard on this, we can actually drive the benefits of it without sort of, uh, uh, with minimizing the risks which are associated to that or actually sort of diminishing it. I don't believe that uh, technology even like face recognition should be banned 
as such, uh, I think that we can find the ways how to do this um, responsibly, how to do this without infringement of human rights. Obviously, there's a huge potential of the bias of the data there, and there's a lot of things can happen around it. But uh, but uh, what we've seen, what type of examples we've seen, for example, there is a whole movement in the Oslo police in Norway, and they are exercising now a sort of a non-intrusive surveillance uh, uh, using AI for the non-intrusive surveillance and how to sort of um, use the data without uh, infringement of the uh, of the privacy and uh, and other uh, human rights related to that. So basically, we do have some of the very interesting and promising examples how to uh, how to do that in the right way. Yeah. So um, going into a big question now. So. When it comes to what the future holds in respect of AI, and I think you've made some predictions here already, what what what's your opinion in you know in terms of where we're heading and how we can better prepare for this future? Uh, excellent question. I mean, I'm not sort of in the business of fortune telling, but I can tell you <laughs> some of the uh, I, I can tell you some of the trends which I think will affect us in the future. One of the biggest trends is the collection of data. And, and, um, and the statistics which I've talked about recently quite a lot is that uh, a very simple one based 2010, uh, we collectively as a human beings collected one zettabyte of data, which is a lot, but uh, it's just a one zettabyte of data. Within 10 years from then to now, we've collected around 45 zettabyte of data. So imagine wow. a 45 increase there. 45 zettabyte of data, as an example, is as much data as every single word spoken by every single homo sapien ever recorded. Yeah. That's how much is 45 zettabyte. Now, it is projected that by 2025, within only five years, we're going to have 175 zettabyte of data. And some people say this is as much as like a stack of DVDs with data to the moon 27 times. So wow. no, no human being or combination of human beings will be able to interpret or make sense of that much of a data, which are why it happened. Of course, I mean, uh, we, uh, all of us, uh, imagine we are all carrying um, data collection machines every day, so-called smartphones, and uh, we take photos, we record conversations, uh, every agency, every organization, every country is collecting so much data. So nobody will be able to make sense of such an amount of data without support of something. And that something very powerful is AI applications, AI tools with, with its own different techniques like machine learnings and all of that. And so the main trend will be that we will be heavily dependent on, um, uh, on AI tools in the future, AI tools be, will become extremely powerful and, and will uh, benefit us in a um, significant or in a very sizable ways. That's sort of on the one direction. We will be able within five to 10 years to solve problems as I still keep saying, which we thought were unsolvable. And I think this is wonderful. And that's something uh, which is worth definitely pursuing. Uh, on the other hand, obviously, we are going to experience a 
dangerous global growth of the digital or growing digital divide among countries. So we will have countries who are going to prosper, find solutions, invest a lot more in this technology, and some countries which may fall behind, and we do need to urgently do something about it. I would I would argue that the growing digital divide could be as dangerous as the climate crisis, which we are experiencing right now. Simply, simple question, why could be answered? Because within 10 to five to 10 years or, or a bit further on, we might end up with billions of uh, technologically driven refugees in the world where people would not be able to find jobs if countries will not invest in knowledge and development. The only way to support that uh, jobs will not be lost to AI tools or other technological means would be to invest in reskilling, re-educating and supporting the uh, more sort of a vigorous um, uh, ways how people can use such technologies in the future. And if populations are not skilled to do that, they would have very serious challenges. So these are the type of pr predictions I have. A lot of people talk about the job losses, obviously. I think that this will certainly happen and, and, and we need to be very prepared to that. And the final thought obviously on this one would be that uh, um, uh, some of these can cause uh, potentially sort of existential problems as well or existential risks. And we do need to be prepared. I don't think that uh, um, uh, we are there yet where people talk about sort of creation of the super intelligence or, or machines which would take over, but we do need to be wary of that. We do need to know, or we do need to be looking to it that what we are developing so that it will not kind of like backfire to us. I'm going to have to ask you this question now. Do you believe the superintelligence is possible? There's been a lot of conversations, right, about uh, different experts arguing whether we are going to arrive at some AGI level, right? Uh, there's some great documentaries out there discussing this. What, what's your personal opinion there? Hard to say. I mean, I uh, yeah, I, I do listen to experts myself as well, and I hear a lot of different opinions. But uh, I will answer to you in this way. Most of the experts, actually, who've been surveyed did not say that it's not possible. Most of them said that it, it's a question of when rather than if. So on the when side, some argue that uh, type of um, uh, type of intel, uh, AI or artificial intelligence on the level of like general artificial intelligence, which is basically human level, uh, uh, AGI is possible within 50 to 60 years. And then there are others who are arguing that this could take like 100 years, 150 years time, which is basically hard to predict what will happen within 100 and 150 years. Because if you look back 100 years ago, we had we were just barely developing uh, cars or we didn't have much of airplanes either. Yeah. So a lot has changed. Uh, even 20 years ago, we didn't have any of the smartphones or, or social medias and everything. So a lot, lot is changing and, and things are changing very, very fast. But, but it is very rarely that you hear experts who would say that we will not be able to achieve 
uh, general uh, artificial intelligence or even super intelligence because after general artificial intelligence, basically it's very close steps to um, something which just basically uh, becomes more and more powerful. Therefore, I think in principle, theoretically it is absolutely possible, uh, but, uh, but I don't think that we are there yet or we will be there in a foreseeable future. Yeah. So let's prepare just in case that's possible and that comes absolutely. sooner than we think. Yes, well, absolutely. I think that we should. Exactly. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Kelly. It was wonderful to be with you. So uh, for people trying to obviously follow your work, be in touch with uh, the developments of your work and with yourself, um, I think Twitter is a good way. And Twitter and LinkedIn, I use both. I, I use LinkedIn a lot. I was not on Twitter for, for quite a while. I uh, sort of kind of joined it recently as well. So please do follow me on Twitter and please uh, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. I post a lot there and, uh, and all latest developments related to the general, how UN looks at the uh, AI and AI issues and particularly how our center is uh, developing different uh, programs and different approaches. Uh, yes, you can learn a lot from, uh, from this uh, social media channel. Excellent. Thank you again. It's been a pleasure. It is uh, my pleasure as well. Thank you. Thank you.